The following edition of The Fourth Estate contains offensive language. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of your nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey. My producer today is Anthony Dockrell. And coming up, from media's Young Turks to this year's first media casualties, globally, BuzzFeed and Vice lay off close to 500 people combined with around 11 journalists in Australia soon to be shown the door in Australia's BuzzFeed offices, is this a sign our news media is really in bad shape? Or, apart from those losing their jobs, not a big deal? Clementine Ford, in-your-face columnist, columnist Clementine Ford, has resigned from the newly merged Fair, Fairfax 9 entity, 9 Entertainment, after being cautioned for calling the PM an effing disgrace in a tweet. But wasn't she employed to be provocative and... Or is the new nine more purient than the old Fairfax? The Press Council has censored the Daily Mail and nine.com.au for what is it, it calls an unnecessary use of the word transgender in reporting a crime story, even though the woman involved openly identified as such. Did the website deserve to be censored or is the Press Council interfering in reporting? And finally, some good news for the media with the Edelman Trust survey showing a significant uptick in Australians' engagement with news and desire for facts. What can the media do to help this uptick, uptick along? To consider these questions and a lot more, we have, I think, one of the most senior and most exciting Fourth Estate panels ever assembled. Joanne Gray is the managing editor of the Australian Financial Review. She's held a plethora of senior reporting and editing roles, far too uh, long a list for me to, rep- re- to talk about now. But uh, she's mainly worked at the Financial Review, but um, she's been the editor of Boss magazine and she's been a correspondent in Washington. She's also worked for Bloomberg uh, News in Switzerland and has uh, been the managing editor for Asia Money in Hong Kong. Thanks for coming, Joe. Thanks, Peter. Great to be here. Great to have you. Helen Trinker. Uh, is also a managing editor. She's the managing editor of The Australian. She, too, has pretty well done everything pretty well everywhere. She set up Boss Magazine. Uh, she now edits The Deal. Uh, she's been a correspondent uh, out of London. She's worked for The West Australian, The AFR, The Sydney Morning Herald, and for the past... How long is it at the Oz? Uh, this time around, about 11 years. 11 years, mm. yes. And she's also knocked off a few books, including a prize-winning biography of the Australian author Madeline St. John, or St. John. And finally, our third guest is Lenore Taylor, the editor of The Guardian Australia, whose sharp and unflinching political reporting has graced the AFR, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Oz, and, now, and then The Guardian. Along the way, she's won a couple of Walkley Awards, a couple of Paul Lyon and Gongs for the Press Gallery Reporting of the Year, and authored a book called Shitstorm on the Rudd government's response to the GFC. She's on the phone. Hello, Lenore. Hello, Peter. Welcome, everybody. Before we get stuck into the questions I foreshadowed, I wanted to ask uh, Helen and Joe a quick question about the Banking Royal Commission, and that is, uh, the government has promised action on all 76 recommendations, and yet, of course, was not in favour of the Commission, but neither were parts of the news media, including the Australian and the AFR. Quick question. Any regrets? 
Uh, look, no, no regrets. Um, it's turned into an amazing new story, in fact, uh, for us. I think what happened was, you know, we'd heard for many years about uh, transgressions and ASIC and APRA followed them up and I guess we became a bit inured to the um, to that. And I think that what the Royal Commission has exposed is clearly a um, a culture in, in the finance industry of um, – definitely putting profits ahead of customers and that's really hopefully going to be redressed. I'm not sure if it will be or not, but the Royal Commission I think was extraordinary because whilst we had heard of many of these cases, um, what they um, they did and Rowena Orr and her, her um, uh, colleagues did was really use them to harness emotion and to focus on um, – bring to public attention the impact on individuals of these kinds of uh, so, so, so practices. How human stories. Exactly, as, which had as, enormous impact. As is the job of journalists. What yeah. about the Australian? Well, I mean, you, the Oz was not in favour of the Royal Commission. Um, just in, in terms of that, well, I mean, I, I think that there are a lot of uh, organisations, obviously, and a lot of people who weren't sure whether it would actually potentially do more damage than, than good at that point, in the sense that this is a very disruptive potentially disruptive um, exercise for the banking system and for the the whole financial system generally. And, of course, I think we're seeing – we have seen some fallout, I suppose, from the Commission as well already in terms of things like, you know, uh, credit, you know, uh, you know a tight, tight, tightening of credit. A whole lot of things have come together, obviously, to make sort of, for example, credit for h homes, you know, harder to get. I suppose my view about it was, and I editorialised myself in the deal about the fact that I had, you know, I personally not had any problems with banks, right? So, like, there's a lot of us, and that's what I suppose is the end result, that mostly have fairly simple, straightforward exercises with our banks. We uh, have fairly straight straightforward things with our superannuation. We are not on the receiving end. We haven't been, you know, burnt in a sense. And I also did sort of feel this argument about whether or not it was actually necessary was, as, as um, Joe has said, is that we knew that there had been scandals and obviously some of our colleagues have done great work in exposing those and they were out there. Many of them were being dealt with. Uh, obviously, as everyone knows, a lot of the material that came before the commission was necessarily sort of historical in a sense because of the stuff that had happened. Some of it had already been dealt with. Now, that's not to take away from the huge job it's done. And it's been a scarifying exercise for the banks and in a sense it's kind of a, an incredible exercise for all of us looking on and seeing it because we're seeing... In some ways, not just the banking system, but big business generally, you know, you could almost argue the whole kind of basis of capitalism sort of being exposed in the sense of saying, okay, this is what happens. You know, how do we manage this? No one's suggesting that we're not going to have, you know, banks operating like this. We're not going to sort of move away from the market, you know, all of those things. But how do you, how do you work this out? You know, and I think it's actually sort of a work in progress. I think it was um, – look, I, I, I just think nobody foresaw – quite how it put an interesting way for a start that Hayne decided to conduct it. Mm. So it was about stories. Mm. And Joe used a really interesting word there because it's about emotion. Mm. And I'm not saying that's wrong either, but because it was about emotion, it's had a particular impact mm. in various right. ways. Yeah. yeah, You know, I personally sort of think that some of the people who appeared before the um, commission were asked to sort of give um, – testimony about their behaviour and about their, the bank culture have been some of them misread it, <laughs> clearly. Yes. Some of them were caught up, particularly in the early days, on on detail perhaps, that, you know, um, 
you know that that's not. I'm not saying the commission was was it was wrong, but you can just see the subtleties. It was not a. It was not a forum for subtlety. No, it was certainly not. Okay. Uh, anyway, so that's... Um, okay, well, yeah. well, we'll move on. We might come back to mm. this question because really it goes to another of our topics, which is the question of trust mm. and uh, very much goes to the trust, right? But anyway, look, let's talk about BuzzFeed and Vice. We've, we've become almost numb to the announcements of journalists losing their jobs in so-called legacy media. But last week uh, we heard about jobs being lost in you know what's called new startups, although they're not super new. BuzzFeed announcing over 250 jobs about a dozen of those in Australia, and then Vice Media announcing it will cost 10, cut 10% of its workforce. I guess we all thought that these startups were going to or were pointing the way to the future of journalism. Uh, what do you make of these cuts, Lenore? Um, I think it shows what's happened over the last uh, couple of years in terms of how hard it is to survive on ad revenue alone, no matter what the scale of your venture. The impact probably of those um, changes that Facebook made to its algorithm, which mm. really impacted um, companies that were trying to just sort of get viral content going. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it means that you can't, you can't successfully run a digital news organisation. I mean, many organisations are doing that uh, behind a paywall and Guardian Australia, we're doing that quite successfully with the reader revenue model where we uh, use both advertising revenue and revenue that readers give us voluntarily. Um, we've just made a profit in Australia. We're about to break even globally and traffic is going up. So I think mm. there are different ways of making money, making a, making a sustainable digital media business, but you need to you know, read the market at the time and those companies were set up when it was believed that you could just get there by advertising scale and that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Yeah, no, it's a really, you make a great point. I mean, I think the other point that, that's been made about BuzzFeed and I'll bring you two in on this is, you know, it wasn't that they were not making money. It's just that they were not making the amount of money that they thought we were going to do and so they sort of were running out of runway. Is, I mean, we all held up BuzzFeed in particular, but also Vice for uh, being in a great transition company. They started off, you know, BuzzFeed making cat memes and cat lists and what have you, and then suddenly started doing what was, could be purported, you know, was serious reporting. What do you make of this, Helen? Is it kind of reinforce the kind of the power you need through I guess, being part of old media in a way. Well, it's not so much, I don't think old media, I think Lenore's right. I think we have to think about getting our money or the digital area has to get get money from the readers, not from the advertisers. So it's just not going to happen in advertising. There's just, we all know the reason why. There's this massive inventory that's almost infinite. Who's going to pay much for that? So it is about a subscription model or some sort of um, payment model by the users, you know. And the problem with that is, look, I think, um, you know, I think that one's just about to some extent this is a matter of time, isn't it? The more that everyone gets used to that and the bigger your reach is. I mean, there's a lot of people in the world and we're finding a lot of people with mobile phones and we're finding a hell of a lot of people able to, um, you know, sort of pay at some level, maybe small amounts of money to, to access sites. I think there's a, also that what's been going on is a sort of a consolidation because there's this rash of mm. fabulous, um, everybody could, you know, they could get into digital, I suppose, and um, at varying levels. Um, because the bar is low. Barriers are very low. Yeah, yeah. the barriers are low. And so, yeah, yeah I, but I do think, you know, I, I've 
I believed, like everybody, about a decade ago that you could do it through advertising. Eventually, you'd get it through advertising. Eventually, you'd get a model with, say, the legacy print and um, digital, in our case, like at News Corp. So a hybrid model. And you get a hybrid model mm. and you'd be able to make it work. Well, I think increasingly mm. everyone gets it that it's about subs. You so, know? yeah, about yeah. subs. So, okay, so, Joe, is there? A, do you know, is there a limit to how many subs, subscriptions, that the AFR could have? <laughs> <laughs> And oh, well, if so, if so, um, can you, you share with that? that? <laughs> well, I, I guess so I, what I'm trying to get to is, is uh, look, how, how um, flexible is that model? It, it's, 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 I don't think it's flexible and I don't, you know, I mean, you know, we can't fiddle with the pricing in a way that sort of does it, you know, either or, you know, A, B testing uh, to find out, you know, if we drop the, you know, the price, would we get the subscribers? I think, um, look, the focus has to be on, creating content that people really, really value. Mm. And so it's it's much easier if you're in the in a financial review situation where you're, you know, reporting on business and people can actually take that information and use it to somehow to either make themselves wealthier or more successful or their clients more successful or they can win a deal. So they can actually use it to, to make money or somehow advance themselves. And I think, you know, that's a very narrow mm. – I don't, I don't know how big that uh, market is, but we're obviously wanting to test that. Well, um, it's, it's a central question though, isn't it? Uh, but it, it's certainly a growing mm. uh, group um, of, of subscribers. I mean, we're actually growing at quite a – a, a fast clip um, and uh, as, as um, exciting yeah, times I mean, ahead, I, actually. Yeah, the other big point here, I think, and I mean, Lenore might like to come in as well, so much around brand, you know, brand awareness. When you think about the big global opportunities mm. there are now and, you know, like New York Times, yep. Washington Post, we know this story, Financial Times, you know, mm. hugely small, terribly small circulation thin Times actually in the UK. I mean, I was staggered years ago to find that it was something like 60,000 or 80,000 or something, very yeah. minor. But, of course, globally it's got the, one of the most brilliant brands. And, and to be honest, it opens, you know, digital opens up the possibility of global numbers in a yes. massive amount. But, you know, how, ma how many Australian-based papers can have a global yeah. identity? Yes. You know? well, we're bringing Lenore Question. back, Lenore. Um, one other thing about BuzzFeed, of course, was that it, they had seemed to have cracked the magic code of sponsored content or whatever they called it. Uh, do you take any learnings from BuzzFeed's, you know, cutbacks on that? Because everyone's trying to dip their toe a little bit in this sort of mm. sponsored content area. Yes, and it's still important, but I think programmatic advertising is becoming increasingly important. And, you know, as the other your other two guests have said, uh, content that readers value enough to mm. pay you for it. And so I guess, you know, my experience is that having a model where readers aren't required to pay. You have to inspire them to pay. You have to do something they love enough that mm. they get their credit card out and mm. voluntarily give you some money when they don't have to is quite a discipline. But, you know, it's edging up toward, it's towards sort of 40% of our revenue. We think it'll be half our revenue in the not-too-distant future. Wow. That's, yeah, so you have to know your readers exceedingly well. You really have to know your readers. You really have to, you know, know what subjects inspire them and what they what they like. And largely, they like, you know, solid, old-fashioned, good 
news reporting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Joe. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, know your readers and know where, you know, try and find out where you're growing as well, you know, which segments are, you know, are growing and, and try and cater to that as well. It, it, it sounds very simple, it's not. So what segments, <laughs> what segments are growing for the fin? Um, we've got a growing segment in the, in the younger um, demographic, I guess you would say. Younger rich people. Well, no, um, you know, people. look, people, this, you know, everyone wants to get ahead, you know, be sure. successful. Want everyone wants to, I mean, this was, you know, one of Helen's great insights back in 2000 when she created Boss Magazine, <laughs> um, that, you know, people want to know how, how to build their careers. They want to know how to deal with people at work. They want to, they want to hear stories about, um, you know, people who have made it and their failures and their, you know, mishaps along the way and how they overcame them. So that sort okay, of thing. But let's move on to someone who I guess was employed because she had an audience. She knew her audience, uh, and that, namely Clementine Ford. But last week, uh, the SMH and she resigned after being reprimanded by her bosses for calling the Prime Minister Scott Morrison an effing disgrace. But as I said, isn't that what she was supposed to do? I mean, chuck bombs? Um, Lenore. Uh, you know, you've got a few provocative columnists. I do have a few provocative columnists. So would I you sack them if they called the Prime Minister an effing disgrace? I wouldn't. I probably, I would certainly talk to them about it. I mean, I think there is a question about how your social media policy, which obviously all organisations have, applies to contributors who are so closely associated with your news brand that they're introduced as, you know, the SMHs, blah, or the Guardians, mm-hmm. X. Yep. And, you know, saying, calling the Prime Minister a fucking disgrace would certainly fall foul of our staff social media policy. So it would certainly, I think, warrant a conversation with a contributor who is closely associated with us. I must say, I think from reading that there's some dispute about the... um, about exactly what went down in that um, the Herald seemed to be saying that they thought she just got some feedback on a column that she didn't like and she had interpreted it as editorial interference. Mm. I'm not, you know, I don't, I, I don't claim to know exactly what happened, but, um, but I do think that, you know, there's a live question as to how you have a social media policy for contributors. And, and of course, and to you, Helen, and you, Joe, as well, you know, in a way, the social media world we live in, Twitter in particular, rewards that sort of, mm. you know, stance. Mm. If you had a columnist who called the uh, Prime Minister a bloody disgrace, would they deserve a reprimand for that? Well, bloody is not as... Not so is it the F word that we're really yeah, talking about? I think the F word okay. is... It's definitely, definitely the case of... Um, I, I wouldn't like any of our people to on the, on social media to be talking... To, to be using mm. um, bloody, to be honest. I don't... I think it's sort of un... It's unedifying. Uh, it's, it is poor language, anyway, for, mm. apart from anything else. I think definitely the F word, you know, we, we in our social media policy, exactly the same as uh, Lenore is saying. It, um, you, know, we, uh, you know, we say to people, you can't do it. You know, you can't, you can't use right. that language because you're using, because you're representing us, you know. Mm. That's right. And um, we wouldn't really, to be honest, have in the print paper, I don't think we'd ever have in a, we'd not, certainly let, have lots of columnists saying so-and-so, this politician or that is a disgrace. Absolutely. They might, but I mean, we'd probably, as a you know, as a sort of an editor of a daily of a page, you know, the opinion page or something, I'd probably read up and say, "Do you really need to say bloody?" You know, mm. I mean, okay. what's the point? Well, you know, I yes. think it's well, you, it, you know, uh, uh, columnists of the Australian, mm. you have been warned. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, and there is also the question.
question of, you know, it wasn't just one thing, I no, don't think. No, it was a... Um, it's an ongoing... Um, but she know, was employed to be provocative. But I, but I do think Lenore's right. She, you know, she was using the platform and... Mm-hmm. It's you know it's a it's a valuable place and we don't necessarily and I'm I you know haven't spoken to anyone at the Herald about this but I think you do have to be cautious about what goes on social media. So, so before we leave Clementine Ford, can I ask, have you noticed any change in the culture of your new you know your new entity? Has it become more purient? Are you absolutely not? Are you watching no. what you're saying at work? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, no, there's been no be change. More... There's no, really no, I mean, no change right. that I can, uh, you know, explain. I, I haven't noticed any difference in the way we do our day-to-day jobs at all. Okay, all right. And all also, right. Peter, Joe would be watching what she says at work all the time as a mature, And we never person. use any of those words no. at work ever no. never to happens. anyone. Not, in, reco- the, not reco- in news conferences. Rec- no one ever says them. No, no. we recognise that yeah. the well, workplace is the place. No, I mean, I see it so seriously. I think it's true. People, the levels of um, respect demanded in workplaces these days is probably much higher than it was when we yeah. all of us went into journalism yeah, probably, 30 years ago. Absolutely true. And given Correct. that we're all on, you know, there's a heavy deadline pressure every single day. People are under very intense pressure and still they behave very civilly, I think, towards mm. each other yeah. on a regular basis. Okay. It's the new new civilised journalism we're working in. You're listening to The Fourth Estate across Australia on the Community Radio Network, coming to you from 2SER Studios in Sydney. Um, Let's stay on controversial subjects. Let's talk about transgender. So the Daily Mail and 9.com.au have been censored by the Press Council for what it says, irrelevant use of that word in a story reporting that the sister of a prominent footballer had been charged over the death of her boyfriend, and I should add that the charges were later dropped. Um, Just to read the headline in the Daily Mail, made for clickbait, of course, um, transgender sister, 31, of football star is charged with the manslaughter over the death of her boyfriend, 51, after domestic violence incident at house in Sydney's south. So I guess the question is, did the press council get it right? Helen? Um, Actually, I don't think they got it right. I think they were a bit half and half about it too because I think they said it wasn't like a, um, I've forgotten the terminology already, but it wasn't a sort of a major problem, but it wasn't particularly relevant. I think it's, I think this one was okay. I would say, first of all, it's tricky territory, all of these descriptions that we use, and I think it's completely the case that you have to think about it being relevant. Um, I I don't want to talk too much about this detail because this person was um, obviously completely clear. The the charges were dropped and whatever. But, I mean, the relevance here, I suppose, goes like this. Here is a person in a domestic violence issue, which is usually male on female, I suppose, in our culture mainly. And it's Mm -hmm. about strength. It's about physical uh, often about physical power, and we have a, a very interesting story here where it's actually a pers- a woman um, who used to be a man who used to be a man killing uh, allegedly, you know, um, allegedly doing something um, to the partner. Uh, and so I think that the fact that that person um, is transgender is inherently interesting, to be honest. And it's it, it, and it's I, I think it's, so it's, re- it's relevant enough to pass the test for me. There's a lot of – I think there's a lot of judgment calls all the time in journalism. And there's also another one that operates here, of course, is because that headline is, um, is, you know, in, is incredibly interesting. <laughs> 
you know, well, that made, story is just incredibly interesting. Well, and it's, it's made for clickbait. Well, it's, it's, it's actually well, made for a story. I don't yeah, think you find anything I'd, wrong with that headline. Yeah, That's, so it's I. a long, it's too it. long. Well, it's a daily but there's, nothing, <laughs> there's absolutely nothing wrong with that headline uh, as far as I'm concerned because it tells a really story which is in itself, there's many components of it and it was at the time obviously extremely sort of interesting. Now, that's what we're in. We're in the... Mm. In the um, in several, uh, we've got several uh, industries here. Several, we're in the business of ma- of, of interesting, you know, material, business of interesting news. Now, I, I I completely understand you've got to sort of have um, judgment calls all the time about how yeah. far you go and what descriptors you use. I think this one, to me, it was um, it was okay. There's often times we have obviously changed our views on a lot of this many times in the last fifty years or so because well, it's, we it's no a, longer refer to yes. people of, by their colour. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, stuff like that that has really changed. We made the point before we went on air about, you know, do we we get offended about the mother of three? A whole stack of people never get offended by that. Um, if you went to the press council and said, uh, I've got no idea, but if you went and took a case of press council and said they, we should not, they should not have referred to the new CEO uh, as being a mother of three, um, I'm not quite sure what the press council well, would say it's about become that. A, it's a normative practice to mm. do that. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it's normative. Uh, Lenore, what do you think? Um, I agree that it's a judgment call to use descriptors when they're relevant to the story. I probably think in I would have made the judgment in this case that it wasn't relevant. Um, we usually use trans or transgender when it's specifically relevant to the story. So trans people in the Church of England or transgender law rights or you know, um, Mm -hmm. trans in the military. So it's like it's it's specifically an aspect of the story. It's it's essential to the story. It it is a judgment call in this case. I would probably err on the side of saying it's not relevant. Um, But like Helen says, practice on these things changes over time. And, you know, I think certainly the, the complainants in this case are trying to change practice. They certainly are, yes, and that's a whole um, another story. I mean, I, I guess to Helen's point, though, I'm interested in your view. I mean, she made the point, I think it's a good one to make, is that perhaps it is relevant insofar as there's a power, there's a muscle uh, element to it, as it were. The, 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 the woman, the man who became a woman was probably stronger than a woman, you know, and so therefore maybe the violence aspect of it is amplified by the fact that the transgender person was formerly a you know, yeah man. might be that's a bit of a long bow. I think, I think I don't think it's I don't think it's essentially relevant to the story. Okay, all right, Joe. What do you think? Well, um, from the position of privilege of never having to write stories about or be editor, um, I'm actually I was I was tending to uh, Helen's opinion, but I think possibly Lenore is is right. If it's not directly relevant, maybe it shouldn't be mentioned. And I, I mean, you know, at a certain point, uh, are we going to get to the point where we even stop referring to mother gender, of, you know? Mother like, of two. Yes. I mean, you see yeah. now some people are bringing their children up in an ungendered way. And, I, you know, at, at at some point we might even get to the point where we'd say, is, is gender even relevant to the story, so which is ridiculous. Anyway, we'll get, <laughs> well, <laughs> take us down that track. But I think, we, I, think we, I think we're all agreeing that mm, this is an evolving, evolving mm, space. Yes. I mean, mm. not related but in a sense, but it's just to look at how, for instance, we now report suicide. Mm. Completely mm. different yeah. than, say, mm. even 10 years ago. Yeah, and right? you, can, you, can only, you, know, you can only applaud those sorts of changes. I think one of the... Um, 
It, it is. Look, it's, it is. I think it is extremely tricky, and I and I think you know at times you can make different decisions about it. I do think that this one. Um, mm. I'm risk of repeating myself. I think there were particular circumstances. Now, whether or not when that headline or that story was written, all of those things came into play. They might have been quite slightly unconscious, but it's sort of interesting. Mm. I think it is interesting in a domestic violence mm. situation. Mm. You have. A, a, a woman who used to be a man, and they're you know. Yeah, um, I mean, I think we could involved mm. in that. You know, well, okay. Domestic but, you know, violence I, ultimately is just violence, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but you know, it is violence, and well, it's, it's power imbalance, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, domestic violence. Uh, uh, yeah, but, but say say it's physical it violence. Even if you're talking about physical violence, you know, there's an, you know, like unless you do not believe that um, that a, a man um, a, that males are often absolutely physically stronger than females. And I happen to believe that that is, you know, the case that they are. Not necessarily each male, but a lot of men of the same dimensions, roughly, would be a lot more physically powerful, have much more muscle strength, you know. So those are things that are interesting in that in a domestic violence um, mm, context. Yeah. Okay, we'll move on. We'll move on. That's very, <laughs> well, it's it's very, interesting, and I, I uh, really like to get back to this uh, subject some other time in the mm. in the future because it's it's interesting to look at evolving practices in journalism um, or not. Yeah. Um, uh, so let's finish on a happier note, which is the twenty eighteen this year's this past year's Edelman Trust Barometer has been released. It was released. The Australian stuff was released today. I was on a panel about it. Um, and mm. it's shown that there's a small increase in movement in how people trust uh, the new, the media, but a large uh, increase in engagement. And uh, to quote the report, mm. engagement with the news surged by 22 points. 40% not only consume news once a week or more, but they also routinely amplify it. But people are encountering roadblocks in the quest of facts with 73% uh, still worried about uh, fake news being used as mm. a weapon. Are we, uh, let's start with you, Joe. are we surprised by this surge? Well, I think we saw the start of it la in the survey last year, um, people starting to go back to the, to the uh, established media mm -hmm. brands. Um, you know, I think we've seen, if anything, a lot of real news um, in the last year about how much fake news and how damaging fake news um, how much fake news there is and how damaging it has been. And I think people have become, you know, over the last year, incredibly sceptical about uh, social media and, you know, the Facebooks of the world. And uh, I think, you know, obviously it's a fantastic thing for established brands with who spend a lot of money employing professional journalists yeah, too. So, yeah, just on that uh, difference between um, uh, news media, traditional news media yes. and social media, I think the gap now is 35 points. Yeah. So, and in, in terms of the trust, yeah, mm. yeah. So it's an incredible gap. Yeah. Although mm. um, search is actually very close to traditional media. Mm. So this is all good news. How do we keep it, it going? Is, well, I think you, we keep on doing what we've always done, really, which is to in sort of traditional, I suppose, or legacy media, or you know, serious media, to to keep on trying to write really good stories, to try to you know get to the bottom of issues, and to have the resources to do that, um, to sort of stick to the stick to that those basics of about um, trying to verify material, you know, to authenticate material. I mean, it's very interesting with um, the trust factor and the fake news factor. I interviewed a guy, um, the head of BBC World Service, um, this week for the media section of the Australian, Jamie Angus, and he they are doing a huge campaign this year, trying to get um, really looking at fake news video. You know, mm. fake video, oh, yes. and that's an area which I suppose I haven't been really thinking what is that about called? a lot. Deep fake or mm. something. Mm. Um, 
And it's really, scary. I mean, I think that's interesting because the, manip- the capacity to manipulate, because mm. the one thing, of course, that video has and is you sort of think, well, if it's happened, you know, you see it, you know. So, you know, yeah. it's not a journalist interpreting what's happened. I've seen this. And as we know, um, in all sorts of ways, that doesn't necessarily the case. But I think it's kind of interesting that that's a new frontier mm. in mm. some ways mm. of, um, of fake news. But, yeah, no, it's, it's great um, news for us. But I'm actually not... That surprised really because I think the fact that we've got so much capacity, um, people can access news in so many ways, has actually meant that everybody's kind of much more engaged with some with information in a weird way. Some mm. of it might be completely shonky, <laughs> which is well, and, the, and people are overloaded with information, mm. so maybe they're coming back to yeah. trusted sources. Lenore, how um, how are we going to keep this trust uptick going? Um, I think it's about the relationship we have with our readers, mm. which has changed hugely um, in recent years. You know, we can engage with our readers below the line. We can mm. respond when they ask que- in real mm. time when they ask questions about what we've done or why we've done it. We can uh, take their, t- you know, like get um, tipped off or, or, uh, or informed when we've made a mistake by readers sometimes. We know who they are. We, and I think the more transparent we are with mm. readers and the more we engage with them, the more they'll trust us. So I mean, that includes sort of showing you're working out sometimes, explaining yep. <laughs> the process of how you got a story. Mm. It involves uh, being transparent if you make a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a whole different relationship, but the more you engage with that relationship, I think the more those readers are going to trust you. Well, um, we're going to wrap up now, but I do have one question for each of you, and it's the same question. Uh, We're heading into an election, as we all know, and there's been uh, a lot of interest in in government, what governments can do or should do or shouldn't do for for news media, given that there is a widespread perception that news media needs a hand. We've had the uh, Senate inquiry last year. We've had the ACCC inquiry into the social platforms. We had things like Judith Nielsen, though obviously not government, setting up a fund of $100 million. Is there, does the news media need, if, it, if, it, if this incoming government, the new government, whichever colour it might be, in 2019, is there any one, th- one thing that it could do to help sustain news media? Maybe I'll start with you, Lenore. I, I think making it easier for media companies to set up a, a, a DGR, so a tax-deductible fund for philanthropic grants for public interest journalism would be hugely helpful. We actually do that now, but we have a workaround arrangement which isn't entirely scalable, and doing that would mean that we could um, look to philanthropy uh, over this period while we're weathering the great disruption as a stabiliser. Tax offsets would be helpful. I'm drawn to things the government can do which are as far removed from any form of sort of direct government um, handouts or in, or that are difficult to politicise because we all know that whatever the government, whatever, whenever it's media policy, you know, the, the debate gets politicised really quickly. And I think the, um, when the small pub, regional small publishers fund was set up, you know, that clearly happened. Mm. Uh, so... You know, I would like the gov- I think there is a role for government at the moment because public interest journalism is essential to a democracy. But I would like them to see them do something that just helps us um, make a sustainable business through the era of transition until we're sort of 
we've we've figured out what the future looks like. Okay, great. Helen, what do you want? Well, look, I'm in terms of sort of you know big policy decisions. I'll you know won't go there so much as thinking. I think what what needs to happen is. I mean, I believe in public broadcasting. I believe in the in the private sector. In uh, obviously. Um, where I work, have worked, and I think that I think the, a kind of a, a, a proper understanding of those uh, entities and those business models, you know, and a mature understanding from you know government as much as anyone is sort of worthwhile. Just on a more practical level, I think the sooner that they get on and this government gets on and um, appoints a chair for the ABC and then uh, a new CEO, uh, the better, because I think it's good. I think it's a hugely, I personally think the ABC is a hugely important part of our news fabric and it needs to just be allowed um, to get on with what they do as we need to get on with what we do. (laughs) Are you you allowed to say that work for Rupert? Uh, to say that the ABC yeah, is hugely important, yeah. absolutely, of <laughs> okay. course. Yeah. Although, I mean, yeah. you know, they are getting on and doing what they do anyway, and sometimes you wonder, well, how, how much do we need the board? Um, I, I would. <laughs> That's um, fighting talk. Sorry, I would That's agree right. with both of those comments. I mean, what I would say is that one of the uh, biggest costs that we face um, is defamation payouts. I'm sure that. You know, the average person has no idea of the number of times we are sued for defamation and how much money we end up uh, paying out to settle cases, even though our stories are correct. Mm. And in the public interest, it's very, very hard to prove that. And um, New South Wales is the defamation capital of the world. If you want to make money, build a pool, build a house, build a mansion. Uh, sue, sue a media company in New South Wales. So it would be fantastic, I think, for public debate and, you know, just in the interests of democratic free speech if we had some reforms to our defamation laws. And I think that goes across yeah, all, does all it go across. And, and mm. there have been some sort of mega, you know, payouts that have been well um, canvassed and reported mm. in the last sort of last year. And, the, you know, some of these are just, um, you know, they're sort of killing actually to, you know, the capacity to sort of um, operate. So, yes, I think things just, you have to be real, you have to be fair about this. You know, you need, um, mm. you need defamation laws that do protect uh, you know, people to some extent. I mean, uh, you know, we we um, we well, we have to have provisions anyway, so that yeah. if people are wrongly uh, accused of things, etc., that there's redress. But um, I just think that kind of getting a balance right, so that um, we can do what we have to do, which is um, in in our jobs, which is to sort of try to uncover un, um, uncomfortable truths. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's yeah. what we're we're here for. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, I think we're going to leave this edition of the Fourth Estate. I, if I, if I could applaud, which I can't, but I'd, I'd very much thank um, to today's guests, Joanna Gray from a managing editor of the AFR. Thank you so much. Thanks. Great to be here. Uh, Helen Trinker, always thank wonderful you. to see you. Thank you so much. Thank and you. on the phone, Lenore Taylor from the Guardian. Thank you, Lenore. Thank you. Um, make sure you subscribe to The Fourth State on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a few things in between any time you like. Uh, we'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. My name is Peter Frey and thank you so much for listening. Listening.